Father, we thank you for all the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us, carry us along. We thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us today, uh, just as it did when these uh, events happened and when the words were first written down for us. And so we pray that through your spirit, you'll give us help, give us insight into your word as we go through it today, and that in everything we do, it will uh, encourage us and empower us to be uh, fruitful and faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. And so we ask all this for his name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 31. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles there, Luke four thirty-one. We kind of did an overview of this last week, ended with that. But I want to pick up back there today and just talk about a few of the details and the way uh, these uh, different episodes are knit together, the way Luke puts them together for us. Uh, so in your notes, if you're taking notes, that will put, put us on page uh, 14. Is that right? Yeah, uh, page 14 in your notes there. We're going to pick up in the outline with L212, right above the middle of the page, Jesus heals a man with a demon. Uh, and, we, and we looked at this last week. In fact, if you notice... Let me just kind of look at the big picture of this section for just a second. First of all, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, he, as we talked about last week, Luke starts in Galilee. There's a whole Judean part of Jesus' ministry that happens at the very beginning. Luke picks up, though, as Jesus has gone back up to Galilee. And so that's what happens in 4.16. Uh, he's in Galilee. He comes to Nazareth. He picks up the scroll uh, or the scroll is given to him, and he opens it to Isaiah. And in 18 and 19, he uh, reads from Isaiah 61, one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, suff- not suffering, sorry, one of the victorious warrior, uh, conquering warrior songs from Isaiah. And I just want to start there and mention this again. Let me, let me read those two verses. There he, he quotes and uh, or reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, again, think about what's just happened. Uh, Jesus, in the previous episode, he's been baptized by John. Uh, A little bit later in Acts 10, uh, Paul, as he's explaining what's happened in Jesus' ministry, he said that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power to do the things that he did. So here, this idea of anointing is critical. And as you all know, uh, that's the word in Greek, that we get the word Christos from. He is the anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew term Mashiach, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so here Jesus has been anointed to proclaim the good news. And specifically, notice it's to the poor. That's a thread we're going to trace through this from here on out. Who are the poor? And I'll talk more about that in just a little bit because we're going to get some examples of who these poor are. But then he says something really important. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see that word liberty twice there? Uh, That word in Greek is the root that we get the word forgiveness from. And in fact, this exact same word is translated as forgiveness a couple of other times in Luke. And we'll talk about those whenever we get over there. We've already seen it once. I think this is the same word that uh, was used at the baptism of John as he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness, the release of sins, right? Uh, That's what forgiveness is. It releases you from the guilt and the power of your sins. That's what ultimately forgiveness is about. But even more than that, we're going to trace this idea of release as we go through the teachings of Jesus to see what this means, this liberty to captives and liberty to those who are oppressed. Who are the captives and who are the oppressed? We're about to get some examples of these people. They're the sick, right? Those who are, uh, in fact, Peter, again, in Acts 10, says that through his anointing of the Holy Spirit with power, Jesus uh, healed those who were oppressed by the devil. So we're going to see all these Issues of healing and demon possession, and uh, Jesus is going to deal with that. Uh, Liberty to the captives, release to the captives. Who are the captives? Uh, All of us. (laughs) That's what Jesus is ultimately going to show us. And one of the great things, that this just hit me this morning in a way 
that I'd never thought about. And I mean, it's just so painfully obvious that I feel stupid even confessing to you that this hit me. But as, as we're going to follow Jesus' teaching, as we start to get into it this morning, this afternoon at this point, uh, one of the things that Jesus teaches so plainly on, and we don't ever think about this way, but Jesus gives us the authority to be released from ourselves. To, to, to be free of the oppression and the captivity that wants to put us at the center of the known universe. Because, yeah, and that's where he's going, right? That's the whole idea of dying to self. It's one of, the greatest, one of the greatest benefits ever. I don't have to worry about myself anymore. And, and it hit me too. I was telling Jill on the way over here. It hit me. I've never thought about this before. But that is, in a sense, part of what Jesus shows in the temptation scene. That he is not oppressed and enslaved to himself. He's hungry, right? But he doesn't have to be enslaved to that hunger. He doesn't have to be oppressed by it. There's something more important. And more importantly, he doesn't have to give in to the temptation that the devil gives him to satisfy that, right? He's free from it. He doesn't have to give in uh, to the oppression of power, right? And, and claim authority over all the kingdoms of the earth in the way that the devil wants him to. He, he doesn't have to give in to the oppression of right spectacle and notoriety. He's free from all of that. He doesn't have to worry about that. Why? Because the Father has already said to him, you are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. That statement, I think, sets the tone for Jesus to be free. And free from himself, right? He doesn't even, as Paul tells us in Philemon, he doesn't even consider his godness something that he had to grasp and cling on to, but he, he, he let it go. He emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, right? Jesus is free. And boy, y'all, if you've lived any time whatsoever, if you're free from yourself, you are free indeed, right? right? I mean, how many times do we sit around thinking about ourselves in the context of what other people are saying about me, this, that, and the other in comparison? And and then you put all these things on yourself about what you think you ought to be. And and Jesus is going to just turn us loose from all that stuff, right? And so this liberty to the captives and all, yeah, there's a... There is a literal sense in which that's going to be true, but there's even a more important spiritual sense that Jesus is going to do that. And so these episodes that we get into, he starts to do that very thing. Uh, Luke 4, 31 through 36. Now, this is where he heals a man in the synagogue who um, is, is possessed by an unclean demon, the spirit of an unclean demon. Uh, the people have been astonished at Jesus' teaching. Uh, in fact, if you remember last week, we kind of ended where uh, Jesus, you know, he says some harsh words and they want to try to kill him. But he just walks through the crowd and goes on. Now, in 31, uh, as he comes down to Capernaum, we'll pick up right there. It says, as he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, which as we know from earlier, that was what his tradition was. He would go in and, and teach uh, at the synagogues on different Sabbath days. And it says, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, that, you need to underline that in your Bibles. That's what every episode is going to do until we get to the middle of chapter 6. All these episodes are just here to establish Jesus' authority, the, the authority of his word. Simply what he says has authority to it. And so, first episode is here with this demon-possessed man. Verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the the demon is definitely speaking in the first person, I know who you are. But it's when he first says it, what have you to do with us? Right? So very clearly, right? There's a there's a collection of demonic spirits that are that are doing their business and whatnot. And this is one of them. But don't you think it's Satan speaking directly to God? Probably, yeah, yeah. Or at least the representative, you know, uh, through through the demonic here, absolutely. And that you know, and he um and there where he, where he cries out, you know, his his essential thing is, man, leave us alone, right? Because we know who you are. And, and notice what he says, have you come to destroy us? That is what Jesus is going to do. So they know what's going to happen, right? They know what's coming down the pike. In fact, uh, later when, uh, 
later when Jesus is dealing with another, they ask, have you come to cast us into the abyss? Because there are already demons that are in the abyss from way back when. And so they already know that we're in trouble. Uh, And the main thing is they know who he is. He's the Holy One of God. But notice what Jesus says, verse 35. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Be shut up and come out. That's all Jesus says. And then what happens? And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Uh, The demon is trying to um, work a deal with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, shut up and come out. That's all he says. And the demon has to come out. Right? So it establishes Jesus' authority. And, and that's what they say, verse 36. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Right? So they're amazed that all he does is speak the word. And, right, and with authority and a power he can command the spirits. Right, so Jesus establishes his power here just with the word. This, is, this too is in the context of, um, at this time, there were, you know, there were people that were trying to cast out demons and whatnot. And they had these long, intricate prayers and these washings they would go through and throw water on them and do all kind of you know, long, protracted things. And sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. Jesus just comes and says two things. Shut up, come out. And that's what it does, right? There's no argument with it. There's no back and forth. He speaks the word and it happens. And that's probably what brings part of the amazement on the people. Um, I, I've, I've had friends that have gotten, gotten involved in more uh, Pentecostal type things, you know, that has a root in the, in the Pentecostal movement. And, you know, everything that goes wrong, there's some kind of demon behind it. And they have all these long protracted prayers that they would pray every day and whatnot. And they would always say, you know, well, we're just doing what Jesus does in the New Testament. I said, no, you're not. Jesus says one word and it happens. He doesn't have to pray endlessly and go through all these rituals and whatnot, right? That's his power. That's his authority. And so that's, you know, saying today, people are amazed at, as that happens. And Jesus is going to give authority to the disciples a little bit later, and we'll see that as it goes along. But uh, Luke wants us to hear these things kind of in, in rapid-fire succession, and so that's what we're going to do. Verse 38 and 39, we talked about this last week, Simon's mother-in-law She has a high fever. Uh, Verse 39, Jesus comes in. He stands over. He rebukes the fever and left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So here Jesus again speaks the word. And notice he rebukes the fever, right? In other words, that fever has no place, no business to be there. And he rebukes it. But there also may be some implication that it had some spiritual reality behind it. Uh, Luke as the beloved physician, you know, he, he mentions Jesus casting out demons and healing sickness more than the other gospel writers do. And I, and I think I said this earlier, but it seems to me that Luke is probably fascinated, probably by this revelation that he gets by being with Paul and then learning about Jesus, is that things that happen in the physical sphere always, always have a spiritual connection, Right? And, 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 and when we look at the Bible, this is so important, right, for us to get our minds around in, in the modern world. The, the, the modern world teaches that reality has its foundation and core in everything that's material, the material universe. The Bible is just the opposite, right? In the beginning, God, right? Everything has a spiritual beginning. The Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water after things have been created, right? So, so Spirit is the foundation for everything material. And there's always some type of spiritual connection to the things that happen in the physical world. And Luke is going to highlight that for us. Some of it's going to blow our mind. And some of it we're going to be like, wow, uh, what is going on here? Is that going on today? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, right. Yeah, and, and, and to know how the world really works, you know. And Jesus is going to open the door for that for us. Uh, verse 40 and 41 is a summary statement. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had, uh, all those who had, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and they were healed. And the demons also came out of many, saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. 
They knew that he was the Christ, right? Um, There's been a lot of debate about why Jesus always rebukes these spirits when they come out and say, you're the Messiah. There's probably a multitude of reasons. uh, But the base base thing going on here is that um, Jesus does not want these things to speak, right? He's not going to give them any kind of opportunity to say anything because they're wicked and corrupt. Also, the, the, within the context, the Jewish people taught that demons are always liars based on right, the devil. So as they come and they confess that Jesus is the Messiah, people could assume, well, they're lying about who he is. Right? So he, Jesus does not want the demon to give any kind of testimony because that testimony is not trustworthy, even when it's truthful. You follow what I'm saying? But I think the main thing is, in all of this, Jesus just will not allow these things to speak. These are not going to give them any room to say anything whatsoever because they have no authority. Uh, This is is Jesus' time, right? And he's putting everything in place. Uh, Then it goes on the summary, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And (laughs) And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving again. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well. For I was sent... For this purpose, right? So Jesus tells us he's been sent to preach to all, the, to all the people all around, not just to one place or the other. Notice again the repetition, the preaching of the good news, right? That's what he had quoted from Isaiah uh, 61 there. He's been anointed to proclaim the good news. Uh, also, now this is, this is one of the first mentions we have of it, really important. Underline the phrase, the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the first time we've had that. Uh, verbiage here. Uh, that's in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a huge thread in Luke and Acts. And so we're going to start to trace that as we go along. I'm not going to say much more about it right now. But this idea of the kingdom is really, really important. And this is one of the first mentions of it. That this good news that Jesus has come to proclaim, it's good news that's related uh, to the kingdom. Uh, and the coming of the kingdom. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what that means as we go along. Yeah. Uh-huh. I heard somebody say that's the theme of the whole Bible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, the kingdom is, is, the, uh, is the, the background and the theme for all of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, chapter 5. Well, anybody else, any questions or comments on that? Any, anybody else questions, comments on that? All right. Uh, chapter 5. Uh, this is one of the places we're going to... I've talked about... I've hit on this a couple of times, but this is where Jesus calls the first disciples. Um, he says, says uh, 5.1, now on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret. That's another uh, name for the Sea of Galilee up in the north there. You can kind of think about that. I, I, there's, I gave you a map that has that on there. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Capernaum is close to the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, and all the other towns that Jesus is going to be going around in, in Galilee. So this is up in Galilee still, in the north. Uh, verse 2, it says, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Uh, two things. Notice uh, Simon. This is, this Simon is Peter, right? He first calls him Master there, right? title of honor and whatnot. But then he says, But at your word. Again, t- focusing on Jesus' word. You tell me. And I'll put down the nets. Uh, <laughs> I love it because he's like, you know, uh, subtly Simon said, listen, you're a carpenter. We're fishermen. We've been fishing all night long. I think we know what's going on here. But if you tell me, we'll go out another time, right? And he's probably thinking this guy to know what he's doing. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, there we get the full name. When Simon Peter saw it, I love this episode. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now we know 
that Peter had already been around Jesus beforehand, right? But Peter had come on fairly early in the ministry of Jesus. So this is not the first time he's run into Jesus. But this is the episode where the light starts to come on for him, right? And so notice as he addresses him this time, he calls him Lord, right? (laughs) Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He realizes there's something else going on here with this man, right? He, I'm sinful, and he doesn't need to be in my presence, right? So the light is probably starting to come on for Peter. Um, and then verse 9, th- this is the really important stuff here. Well, not, I mean, everything's important, but this is where the point comes. For he and all, verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of, the catch of fish and they had, uh, that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So there you get the three... Uh, you know, kind of inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were all business partners. And so they've been here to see this, this miraculous thing that Jesus has done. Um, and then really famous line, uh, in middle of verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. If you remember when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, he, Zechariah was afraid. Gabriel said, don't be afraid. When Gabriel appears to Mary... She's afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter is standing in the very presence of the Son of God, right? And when he says, I'm a sinful man, you don't even need to be close to me, right? First thing Jesus says, don't be afraid, right? Uh, And Peter should be afraid, (laughs) right? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that's not who Jesus is, right? Here, Um, don't be afraid. And then he gives them a whole new test. From now on, you're going to be catching men or catching people, right? Uh, and verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, just hold that in your mind for a minute because that's a big turning point, right? Uh, now, again, these men had already been around Jesus before. They had heard him. So, you know, this is not the first episode, but this is the point where things shift, and they walk away, uh, and they, and they uh, uh, go to follow him, right? Now, just keep all that in mind for a little bit, because we're going we're gonna to circle back around to that a little bit later. There's some things that happen in, in relation to that. Yeah, Ann? Why was this so significant Yeah, yeah. did something, I guess, that other guys I just don't understand if this this multiple Yeah. I know. I I'm not sure I'm not sure either other than um it's it, to, to me it kind of rings to the thing of uh well let me get this is a really lame example but I think y'all understand. I I'm always amazed that whenever I've been teaching or something and people will come up to me like like I'll have two or three people that come up and one will say, oh, when you said this, da, 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 da. You know, that really sparked something. Somebody else, they didn't get that. I'd said something else, and that's what sparked. And the third person will say something to me, and I'm thinking, they said, hey, uh, tell me what you said again about what I'm like, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> but it, it really struck home with them, you know. And so I think it's, it's the thing of um, people's attentions are grabbed by different things, you know. And the really interesting thing about this is, Jesus is showing mastery over an area that Peter thought he was a master of, right? But he's not. And, and also there's, there's a subtle thing here that we're going to see worked out. And that is that Jesus is not just, um, and again, Jesus is doing this through the work of the Holy Spirit and whatnot. He, he is not just the master and Lord of spiritual things. He's master and Lord of all things, right? And I always make a joke anytime I teach on this that if you really want to catch a lot of fish, um, you need to talk to the guy that invented fish, right? And that's what Jesus is showing here, that he has, he has mastery over nature, right? He, he knows things intricately. And by the way, everything Jesus tells him to do, go out during the day, drop down the deep nets, that's completely, that is not at all the way you would fish at that time. Uh, usually, usually they fish at night, because when you're in a boat, the fish can see you, your reflection, and they're trying to get away from you, right? So it's stupid to get out during the day and fish, but then uh, to set the nets down deep, because that's not where they are during the day, right? They're up closer to the top, feeding and whatnot and doing stuff. So everything Jesus tells them, completely counterintuitive. 
but he's Lord. He, and he knows. <laughs> I mean, think about it. In that whole big lake, he knows where to go find the fish. How does he know that? Right? Now we're finding out why he's praying all the time, right? We're about to see this because he's probably like, Lord, you need to tell me where the fish are, right? Father, tell us where to go, right? I mean, I mean that's, that sounds crazy. And also, you know, Peter and them have already seen other things, you know, if we square this up with the other Gospels. But for whatever reason, this is the one that really grabs his attention. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Also, don't you think it develops Peter's character? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because... Um, and, and he's such a great example because, uh, number one, he's a complete bonehead. But he always says the right thing at the right time, right? And if anybody could ever lose their salvation, it would have been Peter. But he doesn't, right? Every time he does something to really mess up, Jesus takes that as an opportunity to redeem him. And take, well, I mean, because, I mean, at the, I mean, think forward to where we're headed with this. And John includes all the detail in this. But in between, right, the death, in the resurrection of Jesus, where had Peter gone? He was back at the nets. He had gone back fishing again, right? Well, this is all over with. And even after Jesus appears to him the first time, he goes back fishing. He thinks, well, this is done. I've, you know, I'm not an apostle anymore, right? And Jesus goes and gets him and says, hey, Peter, have you forgot what we're doing here? I mean, yeah, just a great, great episode. All right, y'all, verse 12, uh, Luke 5, 12. Uh, Jesus cleanses a leper. This is... Verses 12 through 16. Uh, Let me just summarize this because there's a couple of points. Uh, This leper comes to Jesus. And by the way, the only other example we have of healing of leprosy in the Bible at this point is is with the uh, leper that Jesus mentioned earlier, right, back in chapter 4, where Elisha heals the leper. Right? That's the only other biblical occurrence we have of a healer, of a leper being healed until Jesus heals the lepers. And so this leper comes to Jesus. And by the way, the, the, word, uh, the word leprosy is, a, you know, now we think of leprosy as a very specific thing. But the word is just a general word for all kind of different skin diseases. But you know, as you all know, in Israel, all the skin diseases, they were things that put you on the outside of the camp. Uh, the law had very strict things about skin diseases and not spreading infection and whatnot, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And so, and so this, this guy's on the outskirts. Uh, he is social outcast. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Famous example, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, so when he sees Jesus, he falls on his face, verse 12. And now notice what he says to him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't say if you can. He says if you will. If you'll just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then verse 13, uh, uh, this is great. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That's the last thing you're supposed to do with a leper, right? Jesus reaches out and touches this man. And as he touches him, he says, I will be clean, right? So Jesus is like, yeah, I'm perfectly willing to heal you here, right? And immediately the leprosy left him, right? This is not like he goes home and starts putting on an ointment, right? This is, he is immediately cleared up of what's going on so that people can see it. And he charged him to tell no one, (laughs) don't tell anybody, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded uh, for a proof to them. Uh, Jesus is always very careful to make sure that people do what the law of Moses requires. But in just a little bit, we're going to see all the traditions of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees. He just throws those out hook, line and sinker. Says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Right. But when it comes to the law of Moses, Jesus is very careful to tell people, do what's required of you. Go show yourself. And also, you know, he just told this guy to tell no one about it, but he goes shows the priest. And that priest's going to know who this guy is, and he's going to ask him, "What happened to you?" Right? He's going to have to tell him. And so, really interesting. And, and also, you know, Jesus knows people. Um, the ancient Israelites were also like good Americans. You tell them not to do something, and they're going to do it. Right? <laughs> By golly, you can't tell me what not to do. I'm going to run the exact opposite way. But verse 15, and now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him 
and to be healed of their infirmities. But, verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. It's another account. As I said, Luke tells us more about Jesus praying or just mentioning the fact that he's praying all throughout this. And so here, he, Jesus will go, withdraw from the people <coughs> and um, pray to the Father. And of course, this is his, you know, this is his resting. I'm sure these people were wearing him out. You know, day in, day out, people coming to him and Jesus would pull away. Uh, we'll, we'll say more about that as we get a little bit further in. There's a couple more episodes that are, that are significant with that. Verses 17 through 26, this is one of the more famous episodes. Um, verse 17 says, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the... Here, here we go. We get introduced to him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the Bible experts of the day. These are the seminary profs. Right? These are the people who, these are the people who have written the commentaries on the Bible. They have got it figured out. They know what's going on, right? And they got more letters after their name than they've got in their name, right? So those people that Tom Murray warned us about. Don't ever trust anybody. It's got more letters after their name than they've got in their name because they got something to prove, right? Now that's who these people are. They're sitting there. Who had, they had all come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That's a really interesting statement. Um, we're just going to hang on to that. We're, we'll, again, we're, we'll come back around to that idea a little bit later in another chapter. Verse 18, Now behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in. And lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, look at that plural. When he saw their faith, that means everybody there. The paralytic, the guys who are putting him down through the roof, right? Um, Because that paralytic has probably said, I need to go see Jesus. I I can't get there. Y'all have got to get me to Jesus, right? Uh, more than likely. Now they're bringing him in and how are they going to get to Jesus? We can't get to him. We'll, we'll tear the house apart <laughs> to get to him, right? Uh, so verse 20 though, this is so good. Now remember, this said in the context of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are sitting there and Jesus, boy, howdy. He never misses a chance to really tick off the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He doesn't even wait for it to happen. He just throws it out. And he says, I am about to ruin their day, right? And this is what he does. He saw, he saw the other people's faith and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you, right? Right, there it is. What? He doesn't even talk about healing yet. Jesus starts with the forgiveness of sins because he knows what's going to happen. Verse 21, I, I, I just love this episode for so many different reasons. Verse 21, now the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a perfectly legitimate question, right? Perfectly legitimate. Verse 22, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, you see that? They're over there whispering in the corner, right? Now, Jesus already knows what's going to be going through their head. When he says those words. So he knows what they're going to be thinking. And he knows what they're thinking. When he perceived their thoughts, he answered them. And he says, why do you question in your hearts? And notice, this is not something they have said aloud to him. Right? So the minute he tells them, why are you thinking this way? There would have been, oh, wait, what's going on here? Right? Why do you question in your hearts? Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? So which is easier, just to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Or to tell this guy, get up and walk away from here. Now, imagine being a scribe or a Pharisee right now, right? Because they've heard about Jesus healing people and everything. They've just raised the question about what authority does he have to do this? But if he says to that man, get up and walk, and he walks away, which, by the way, is probably an unheard of thing. A paralytic, this guy can't do anything. People have to carry him around on the stretcher. But if Jesus speaks the word and that guy gets up and walks, we are in bad trouble. Right? Let's see what happens. (laughs) Verse 24. 
still speaking to him. He says, but you, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority. There's the critical word. So that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them, picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today, right? Except for the scribes and the Pharisees, right? <laughs> now, now, just hold your finger right there, and I want to show you something. Um, we're going to see a couple more healings here in just a second. But in chapter 6, in 6.11, Jesus is going to heal another man on the Sabbath with a withered hand, and they're going to get mad. And in 6.11, the, the same scribes and Pharisees, when he heals that man with a withered hand, it says, Now they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Uh, and I, the word fury, I don't know what your translation has there, but they were filled with maybe anger, fury, something like that. Uh, the word in Greek is, is great. The word in Greek is literally mindlessness. And, I mean, we still use this phrase in our culture, that person lost their mind, right? So this is mindless fury, right? They have just gone, in, Jesus has made these people go insane over what he's doing here, right? And the only way they can respond to it is, we got to figure out what we can do to him, right? So already they're beginning to plot. Already Jesus is setting them off, right? And so these healings and these episodes... Uh, it introduces this major controversy that Jesus is going to have with the scribes and the Pharisees from this point forward. And we're gonna, we know where that's all going. Uh, we, know, we know where that's all headed. But in the meantime, all the other people are rejoicing and they're amazed at everything that Jesus is doing. Right? Uh, back in chapter 5, a couple of quick episodes. Um, 27 through 32, uh, Jesus calls Levi. Levi is a tax collector, and Jesus says to him, follow me. Verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Right? You start, we're starting to see a pattern here. Right? Uh, these people are leaving everything behind to focus on Jesus, to follow after him. Then, a uh, really critical statement uh, for the gospel. Verse 29 through 31, Levi then made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining, at table with them, uh, eating and, and eating uh, at table with people are, are important for Luke. And, and the other gospel writers we will we'll trace that as we go along. Um, because you, you, this is somewhat still the same in our culture. But, you know, we generally only tend to eat with people that we really accept as our own. Right? You don't invite most people you don't know into your house to eat with them. Right? Sharing a meal is a very intimate thing. And you especially don't want to invite somebody in that, that's going to be boring and, you know, might not have a good conversation or whatever, you know. But Levi's a tax collector. He's got a lot of money. He probably throws pretty good parties. Jesus like, yeah, let's go. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go, right? So he's sitting there in the midst of the tax collectors and all this. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled uh, at, at his disciples. Notice that they <laughs> They're at least smart enough not to take it up face-to-face with Jesus, right? He's already shredded them once, so they're not about to go talk to him directly on this. Um, So they're complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answered them. So here, Jesus hears what they're saying. And this statement is so uh, profoundly insightful to everything going on here. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Um. A physician, that, that's, the same, that's the exact same word that Paul uses of Luke in Colossians. The beloved, uh, Luke, the beloved physician, same word here. Um, no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? Now, let me, if, if, I, if I could paraphrase what Jesus is saying there in verse 32, the, because that, that kind of, it's, it's hard to get your mind around at first. What is he saying there? Uh, the, the intention of what he's saying seems to be this. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Right? There's a big difference in thinking you're righteous and knowing you're a sinner. And the reason I say that is 
Jesus is going to give us several parables and examples that highlight that very thing. And all throughout Luke and Acts, it's those who think they are righteous that get in all the trouble. But it's those who know they are sinners. Right? Uh, Mary, in her hymn, right, as she's praising God, she says, He has taken uh, account of my lowly estate. Right? Her humble, her humble situation. Right? And so here, uh, Jesus just states exactly what He's come to do. He's going to call those who know they're sinners. Those are the only people that this message is really going to resonate with. And again, I go back to that statement that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you, re- uh, if you retain ignorance, I'm sorry, if you retain arrogance, it's impossible to dispel ignorance. Right? If you think you've got it figured out, then Jesus has got nothing for you. Right? And boy, how do you think about Now again, we'll talk about that as we go. Uh, there's a lot of applications uh, in that. But Jesus just states the principle right now. Then he takes it a little bit further. Uh, verse 33. Now they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make uh, wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Right? So Jesus is like, no, we, we don't fast because I'm the Messiah. I'm here. I'm offering you all the kingdom. Have you all been paying attention to what I'm doing? We're healing people, right? We've raised the paralytic. We're casting out the demons. I mean, the, the kingdom is, I'm the king. The kingdom has come upon you. This is not a time to mourn. Now, a day will come, right? So, so notice here, already at the very beginning, Jesus is already preparing them for, but wait a minute, this is not going to turn out the way you think it's going to. There is a day when I am going to be taken away, but not yet. Not yet, right? Verse 36, he also told them a parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And in the same way, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the, uh, the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now stop right there. So here, the idea of a patch, right? If you sew a new patch onto old cloth, the new is going to shrink and it's going to tear everything apart. If you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins have already expanded. And when that new wine begins to ferment, right, there's going to be no more room for expansion and it's going to split and break them all together. Now let me tell you what I think Jesus is referring to here. This is, and we'll see this in the very next episode. Jesus is talking about that what he is teaching them is something entirely new. And the old traditions are not going to be able to square with this new teaching I've been able to give you, right? And, and what Jesus is, the, 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 the old here, if I could say it this way, the old is not just the Mosaic law and covenant, although that, that's going to be implied in this a little bit later. Because the new covenant that Jesus comes to bring in his blood is going to supersede that old Mosaic covenant. But even more so, the traditions of the people are going to be one of the primary things that keep people from seeing what Jesus is offering them. The new way of life that Jesus is offering them, right? Uh, It's the old power of tradition. Tradition! Tradition, right? Man, you can't break free from it. It it gets a stranglehold on you and you can't get free from it. And that's, that's what he focuses on in verse 39. No one who after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says, well, the old was good enough. Right? If you're so used to the old stuff, whenever the new stuff comes, you, it's hard to develop a taste for it. Right? And now think about it. These people have been raised on the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees and all their endless additions to the law and all their traditions from their youth up. And Jesus is about to come, and well, he is. He's kicking over that apple cart. He's saying that, that all that stuff means nothing. We're about to see an episode where that happens. All that accounts for nothing, right? I'm bringing in a whole new way. And, and y'all are going to have to be prepared for that new way. And this, this new way is going to push so much further than any of them are ready for that Jesus is starting to just get them ready for. Listen, we, we're just getting started. <laughs> we got a long way to go. 
So you can't stay attached to this old way of doing things, right? Uh, you got to recognize what's happening here. And so uh, we'll, we'll see that theme played out as we get into these next couple of chapters here. Anybody questions or comments on any of that so far? But the tragedy is many of the Orthodox Jewish people are still waiting. They're still waiting for him. Yeah, aren't they going to be surprised? You know, it's, yeah. It's, it, it's, also, uh, it's also, you know, one of my favorite topics to study is church history. You know, and, and uh, church history is such a confounding thing to study because we look at the Old Testament and we think of how Israel failed and was faithless time and time and time again. Church history makes that look like a Boy Scout picnic in terms of the way we've rejected, you know, the church has rejected the truth, turned away from almost everything Jesus has taught. I mean, you and I now in 2022, we're living right probably a quarter of the way through the great apostasy that Paul talked about in Thessalonians, the great falling away. We're, we're, probably, we're probably, you know, waist deep in it right now where you can go to church and you can never hear the gospel. You can never hear the name of Jesus. But, man, they've got that Christian whatever out there and flags and banners and, you know, and, and, you know, and it's the church of Laodicea. Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door. I would come in there and have fun with y'all if y'all just opened the door to me, right? And so when you look at all that history and you look at where we are, again, the root of it is we don't look at what we're, the new thing that Jesus is leading us into. We're just, we, get, we, didn't, we get encrusted in those traditions, you know? And, and, and whatever, um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Roger Clapp, used to say, the things that got us to where we are today are not the things that will get us to where we need to be tomorrow. And I always loved that, right? Because he was always saying, Stacy, you got to keep it fresh. You got to keep going, right? You can't study and read Luke one time and you got it figured out, right? We got to go back to it and go back to it and change our thought. And, change and this is what Jesus is leading people into. And yet we resist it at every time, right? We hate change. As human beings, we hate change and we hate the new and the uh, I want the same old stuff. Don't, I don't want the iPhone 74. The iPhone 2 is fine. It made a call. You know, I don't need it reading my heart rate and telling me, you know, and then listening to me and throwing up ads on my TV screen for everything I talked about today to try to get me to buy it on Amazon, right? Let's burn all that stuff and throw it in the trash. I don't want the new stuff. I want the old. That's where these people are stuck with, right? Now, now what I'm talking about is a valid thing. What, 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 they're, what, what they're doing here is something else. Uh, chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6, 1, we get the first of these Sabbath controversies. These, the, the Sabbath controversies are fairly significant. We're, we're going to see several of them kind of in, in short order here as we uh, go along. Uh, this one uh, kind of kicks those off. Uh, notice verse 6 says, Now on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Notice that's a lot of detail. right? They, they, they pluck it. Right? They plucked, they ate, as they rubbed it together in their hands. Now, this is why Luke mentions that, I think. Uh, all the Lord said about the Sabbath is, don't work, right? So don't go gather, don't, you know, don't harvest. You know, he gave us you know, some basic examples. But by the time you get to the, to the uh, first century, uh, some people have said that uh, the, the uh, Pharisees had added like 40 other laws on top of this. In fact, one of the, this is, this is a, one of the rabbis that's quoted in the Mishnah, where all these rules were collected, which goes back to the scribes, the scribes, and the Pharisees. He was making a comment on the laws about the Sabbath, and this, this is what this rabbi said. He, said. he said, the rules of the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for the scripture is scanty, but the rules are many. In other words, we've just made up a lot of stuff. That doesn't have anything to do with what the scriptures are saying, right? And so what the, what the Pharisees had taught was, you know, that they had already extrapolated about how far you can walk on the Sabbath, you know, uh, reducing that. But uh, when they talked about this right here, if you plucked a piece of grain, which, by the way, eating out of a field, that, that was fine. You know, you could go through somebody's field as you're walking through. And roads often went through fields and farmland. You know, they didn't try to go around or whatever. So it was perfectly fine to get up a few grains and eat it. But it's Sabbath. So they pluck the grain. That's harvesting. They run it between their hands. That's threshing. And you put those two together. That's preparing a meal 
which was supposed to be on, done on the Friday before the Sabbath. So the disciples have already broke three of the Pharisees' laws, right, <laughs> in doing it. And that's what they say, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees say, why are you doing what's not, not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus could have just as easily said right here, listen, all those laws y'all are thinking about, that's just your tradition. That's not in Scripture, right? But he doesn't do that. He does something else instead. Now, look at what he does. Jesus answered them and said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. So now he draws on an Old Testament uh, parallel, right? David, not only did he eat some grain, right? That's a minor thing compared to what David did. He went in and ate the bread that the law had specifically commanded. No common person can eat this bread. That's reserved for me and the priest. You're not to eat from this bread. David's hungry. He goes in and he eats the bread and also the people who are with him. Rabbis who had talked about this episode, they'd come to the conclusion uh, that, and and again, we don't know how far this go, how far back this goes, if if this was taught at the time of Jesus, but it makes sense. But the rabbis had already reasoned, well, wait a minute, David is the king, he is a messianic figure, and therefore his rights supersede anything that was going on about that bread. David is more important than the bread. So they had extrapolated out, well, certain laws can be bent as long as if if it's for a better motivation. And feeding the king, who is a representative of the Messiah, that's perfectly fine to do, right? So here Jesus draws on this story that they would have known about, but then he takes it a step further. Verse 5, and so he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now what is he saying? I get to make the rules. You do not get to make the rules, right? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so what he's saying, tying that into the story of David, is number one, he and his, his and notice, it's only the disciples as far as we know here that's doing this. It doesn't mention Jesus doing it, just his disciples. But the needs of his disciples are more important, right, than the Pharisees' laws. But even more than that, um, just as David, as the, right, the king, and the, and the prototype of the Messiah to come, if he can transgress the law, then how much more so can the Messiah do it when he comes? Because Jesus is the very Messiah that, Je- that David was the forerunner of, right? So if he can do that, how much more so me? But, but the main point Jesus makes is, look, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the second time that we've heard the Son of Man, I think. Uh, first time was back where he healed the paralytic uh, and I had you underline that in 524, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, he has authority to forgive sins. Here, the Son of Man is what? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He gets to make the rules, right? Now what are we going to do? Now, now you can see how we're amping them up for them to lose their mind here, Right? Uh, look at the very next episode, because I want, I want to end with this so you can see it all together. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. They had told you can't heal on the Sabbath, right? that, that you can't do anything unless a life was threatened. right? And if you had somebody that's having a heart attack or whatever, you can get help for it, but not... Just, you know, if you've got a headache, you can't do anything about that. That, that. That's not critical enough to transgress our laws over it. And, and the word where it says they watched him, it's, it's, like, it's like they're spying him out. Right? They're going, oh, oh we're, we're, we're going to catch him on this one. Right? We're going to get him. Uh, so they're watching uh, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. But, verse 8, here, here we go. Man, they don't learn their lesson the first time. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. <laughs> and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. Now notice the guy with the withered hand has not come to Jesus. Right? They're, the Pharisees are sitting around waiting to see what might happen. Jesus sees the man with the withered hand and says, hey, come here. Come up here and stand right here. Right? So Jesus, is, again, he's the one that's instigating this whole thing. Jesus could have not done anything. Just taught. Do what he does and then move on. No, 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 no. That's not good enough. i got to make these boys lose their mind. Right? 
That, if, if they thought eating the grain was bad, wait till they see what I'm about to pull out of the hat on this one, right? So he has him come up. The guy stands, uh, comes and stands by Jesus, verse 9. says, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So he asked them an unanswerable question. No matter which way they answer it, they're going to be in trouble, right? They're either going to invalidate their own teaching, but whatever they do, they're going to wind up agreeing with Jesus, right? So he puts them in a real, real thick place. Verse 10, and after looking around at them all, right? and I love that because the idea is Jesus asks the question and then he pauses and he's just looking around at everybody. How do y'all, how would you answer that, right? Let me let you think about that for a minute before he does anything. And then after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, right, instantaneously. He's not taking aspirin. He's not putting on a cream. Jesus speaks the word, and the hand is restored, right? Whoa. And then here's the answer, or the response, verse 11. But they were filled with fury. They were filled with mindlessness and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus, right? Now, they were just ticked off a little bit earlier. Now they're starting to take counsel. What are we going to do with him? Man, at every turn, he's kicking the boat over. He, he's causing us all kind of problems. Uh, that sets up the, um, the beginning of everything else that's going to happen in Luke from here on out. Notice the very next thing that happens, uh, 12 through 16. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. So here he's praying again. This time it's all night. And it's on the day before he chooses the twelve. And so he called his disciples to him and he chose from them the twelve. So Jesus has got more disciples, right? But this is where out of that group of larger disciples, he's going to choose twelve. And he's going to name them the apostles. Twelve whom he called apostles. And then you get the names of the twelve that we're all familiar with in one way or another. So here, this, this is the turning point where after Jesus has begun his ministry, now he is starting to pull together a group where not just he is going to be preaching and healing and doing those things, he's now going to start to send out people. And the word apostle in Greek, as you all probably know, is based on a root that means someone who is sent out. And so the, I think the best way to think about these men is they are the uh, official representatives of Jesus. They are sent out by Jesus to preach the good news, to heal, to do all the works that Jesus has been doing. And he's going to start, he's going to send out the 12. Later, he's going to send out 72, if you remember that. So Jesus is starting to mobilize his people at this point, people who have seen and, and bought into the message. Now, these guys have no idea what they're in for, right? They, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it, and a lot of people think that as Jesus sets these guys apart, that these are the guys that went just through the discipleship training program and they've got out at the end with their little certificate and they're ready to go. No, 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 no. These are the guys that Jesus has selected to go into the discipleship training program, right? These are the people that he set apart for, okay, we got to have a nucleus of people that are literally going to give their lives for me. And I think that's what Jesus is praying about because he knows these 12 that I set apart tomorrow and calling myself, they are all going to die for me. And I think that's why he's praying all night to the Father over these people, right? He's going to call these 12 to do things that, you know, if he had told them up front, I don't know that they would have, <laughs> I don't know that they would have bought into it on first glance. But Jesus sets them apart here, and that, and that shifts the ministry. Then we get, um, next week we'll come back in chapter 6. You get what's called the Great Sermon on the Plain. It's parallel to the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapter 6. And this, this is where Jesus starts to give some of his more hardcore teaching on discipleship, what it means to follow him. And so he's going to do that through chapter 9. He's going to be uh, teaching on discipleship and what it means to follow him. He's going to be healing, doing all those things. And then when we get to chapter 9, he's going to turn and they're going to head toward Jerusalem. And then, then that's where he really turns up the heat on the, on the significant teaching and whatnot. So th- this here where he set the, the apostles apart, this is another turning point in his ministry because he's now going to start to train these men 
to be his representatives to take over his ministry both right now in his earthly ministry but even more so these 12 are going to well the ones we know about and are mentioned are going to are going to be the primary actors in the book of acts in the first half of acts as jesus sends these men out to preach and to extend the kingdom and whatnot so critical turning point all right y'all we're a little bit over um, we'll, we'll pick up right there in chapter 6, right in the middle of chapter 6 next week. Let me go ahead and, and pray. I'll let everybody get out of here that needs to get out. If you've got any questions, I'll be happy to stick around and talk with you uh, after class here. But let me let, go ahead and, and release everybody. Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity we have to get together and study your word. We, we, we thank you, again, that it speaks so powerfully to us. And Lord, when we, uh, when we read these episodes, these, these things... Uh, these events that happened in the life of our Lord Jesus, and we see how he deals with people uh, exactly in the way that they need to be dealt with. Uh, we're just amazed. And we, uh, like the audiences that were there and saw these things, we see his power and his authority. And we think about that in light of the fact that we know him today. We know who he is. Uh, we know his name. We know what he's done. And what a blessing that is to be where we are uh, on this side of the cross and on this side of his earthly ministry to know so much more than even these disciples did um, that were there and, and, and bore witness to these things. And so, Father, that gives us a greater sense of accountability and a greater sense of responsibility to take your word and to be faithful and fruitful to do the things that you have us to do here in 2022. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will empower us and uh, make us aware of all the opportunities that we have every day to be uh, people who represent you in all that we do. And so we ask all this for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.